worship, and um, it uh, just seems to be so peaceful in here this morning for some reason. And it's kind of ironic because of the chapter this morning about how uh, the, the earth and the heavens rage in an all-out spiritual battle. And that's actually happening right now. So as I think about the, the spiritual warfare that takes place and that we'll learn about in this chapter, we are so blessed to be in such a state of peace and to have so much freedom to pour our hearts out to God and to enjoy each other's company. And that's only by God's grace and his love and his care, his protective care for his church, that we get to enjoy what we enjoy here Sunday after Sunday. So it makes me all the more grateful for what we're about to learn in our chapter this morning. And we are in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, learning about the major characters in this all-out spiritual war, in this battle that rages. And I've entitled this chapter, The, the Rage of Satan, because Satan is on, certainly is on a rampage. And last sermon we looked at the grounds of this rage that Satan has. And today we're going to look at the purpose for this rage and then the remedy for the rage. And I think it's only right that I read the chapter. It's only 17 verses, so we will read it through again this morning. And I'm just going to jump right in with both feet. Revelation 12, first verse. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you. O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. 
And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand and the sea. So he sees two great things in his vision here. And the first thing he sees is this woman, the radiant woman. She shines like the sun, she stands on the moon, and she wears a crown of diadems which symbolizes victory and beauty. The 12, um, the 12 stars, of course, would symbolize the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, which in Revelation symbolizes the whole company of the saints, both Old Testament and New Testament. In other words, the people of God, all believers that ever lived, that's the church, the people of God. And so this mother represents the church. In fact, this mother is the church because we saw in verse 14 where this, um, the enemy comes after all of her offspring. So Mary only bore, gave birth to Christ. But because of that birth of Christ, the church was birthed, so to speak, and there have been many others that are his disciples and follow him. And that's the church as we know it. And she gives birth to this one who will rule all the nations with a, an iron rod. And that's Christ, we know, easily identifiable because that's prophesied in Psalm 2. That's how Christ will come and he will rule all the nations. So that's the child that was given birth. And this child, we don't hear really in this chapter, don't hear much about Christ. He's just, he's born and he's taken up with God. The focus is more on the dragon and the church. It's more on the battle that we experience. So we find that this, um, this church, the people of God, have been whisked away by God because the dragon is pursuing her and her offspring. And so God takes them into a place that is called the desert or the wilderness. And this is uh, symbolic or it's, it's a reference to how God dealt with his people Israel. When he freed them from Egyptian bondage and he called them out to himself so that they could learn who he really is and how to properly address him and worship him and live before him. And so that they can learn how trustworthy he is, so they can understand the magnitude of his love, and that he's worthy, 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 as we just heard, to be followed, to be worshipped and adored. And in all those desert and wilderness wanderings, it was a great, the, the intent was to develop this tremendous relationship between God and his people, God and his worshippers. So it was a, there were times of testings and there were times of hardship and trials 
to prepare them for the promised land. But there are also times of great intimacy. There were times when the Lord worked miraculously in their lives to show them, to reveal himself to them. So likewise, that is a picture of the church, according to the book of Revelation. We are also in this this season where we're not in the promised land, which our promised land would be heaven, but we're in a season of the wilderness. We're aliens in, in this world, Peter tells us. We're strangers in this world. But God has called us to worship him. And we have all these opportunities where he will test us and try us and we'll, we'll have to endure hardships. And it's for the purpose that we will develop a very strong and, and rugged relationship with the Lord. And it needs to be rugged because it's not all smooth sailing in this world. We need to be prepared for the hardships because evil still exists. We have to face it in different levels and to different degrees. But like Israel, we are under, the, God, the church of Christ is under the care of God, the miraculous, protective peace and love and care of God. And that's why we shall persevere until the very end. The church will never, ever be snuffed out. God always has a remnant because it's his power that keeps us afloat. It's his power that keeps the, the fire or the flame in our hearts ablaze to live before him and to worship him. So that's the first sign. It's the radiant woman, the church um, of Christ. But he sees another sign here that also gets his attention. It's this dragon. It's the red dragon. And red probably sim- symbolizing the, the blood and the fire of war. And he has seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems. Um, seven, of course, refers to completeness or, or perfection and tend to completeness. And the idea here of this crown that he's wearing is that he is uh, claiming authority and kingship over the entire world, over all of the nations. And scripture calls him the prince of this world. And he does have power, though we know it's limited. He has tremendous power to work his evil in this world. And it's in the midst of this vision that John uh, treats us to something very intriguing that happened in the heavens that if it were not revealed to us in God's word, we would have no idea anything like this ever transpired. And we find it in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels, fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now that's not a whole lot of details to go on to make some great story or theology over. So we can kind of only speculate, but it did happen to some degree here. But there came a point in time in redemptive history where Satan, of course, he's always a troublemaker and he's always a rebel, but at one point in time, he just made war. He provoked some kind of war. I guess it was um, his all-out attempts to, to be God, to replace God, to be worshipped like God. And there was a fight that ensued, but he was defeated and he was cast out of the presence of God and he was relevated now, his fear is relevant. Uh, relegated 
to the earth only here. He and his angels, those that followed him, those that rebelled, were also hurled down. When did this happen? When did this battle in the heavens happen? I think if you really think about this, the way that this chapter is worded, that I would surmise that this battle happened during the ministry of Christ. Because it was during the ministry of Christ when a cosmic shift in the universe happened. Christ defeated sin. Christ defeated the devil. He defeated death. Everything hinges on this. And it shook the heavens and it shook the earth. Literally, by the way, earthquakes. But also spiritually in the victory that was won and the damage that Christ did to evil. So I think this cosmic shift happened during this time. It's the, as the most likely um, explanation here. And some ref, uh, believe that what Jesus says in Luke 10 refers to this, and that's when he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven. And so when Jesus came and he started his ministry and, and souls were being won and people were proclaiming the gospel and being transformed by the power of God and exorcisms were taking place, people had a bead on Satan, and, and there was more clarity now between good and evil, and it just was a, a cosmic upheaval and battle here that took place. Satan was knocked down, and on his way, he took as many as he could with him to wreak havoc. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And, um, you know, I wouldn't take that literally to say one-third of the angels because we already know you try to take numbers literally in the book of Revelation and you're up against a wall. You're in a hard place. But the idea is that he took many angels with him, many of his minions with him there. Mark 5 tells us that there was one case of demon possession where the demon identified himself as legion. We are many. So it's enough. However many it is, it's enough to be a formidable force against God and his people, the Lord and his hosts. So he lost this fight to Michael and his angels. You know, he, he, he didn't really, uh, they, they, they had a fierce fight, a fierce battle. They were overcome. They were thrown out of the, the, the ring, you might say, and cast down to the earth. They were submitted so this scene appears to describe um, a huge turning point in redemptive history, and that's why I think it refers to the coming of Christ. But it's interesting what happens, and I've never really given it much, much thought, but we're used to scenes like the book of Job where uh, Satan presents himself before God. He has conversations with God, and the angels present themselves. Those are the days where they presented themselves before the Lord, but now he is cast out, and the idea is that his sphere is limited to the realm only of earth, and he doesn't have that kind of access that he used to have with God. He is banished. Now, John says this is great news. This is great news for heaven because Satan is no longer there. He has been cast down to the earth. So rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But it's not good news for those that are on the earth because that's where Satan is relegated to do all of his harm and work out all of his evil now. So he says, but woe to you, 
O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. He is furious because he knows that his time is short. He's been defeated, but he hasn't stopped fighting. There's, there's no truce. He wants no truce. Doesn't want to work out any kind of deals. He is enraged and he will fight tooth and nail to the last. And that brings me to our first point. The purpose of his rage, John tells us, is that his time is short. He's been relegated and now his time in sphere, and now he's been relegated in how much time he has left to freely do what he does or to have the freedoms at least that God gives him to do what he does, he has come to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And again, time is not how we keep it. Heaven's time is on God's time only. And he is, the, the devil's been with us a long time, thousands of years. And that sounds like, that doesn't sound short to me. But in the realm of redemptive history, it is short. So that's, his, that's what his rage is all about. What a sad commentary. You know, if we, if we ever doubted the, the, the wrath of Satan, the power of Satan, and just how evil he is, just think about this picture. I mean, it's pitiful. Because we hear stories of people that have been diagnosed with something, and you get that, that sad report or news that you only have X days or months or years to live. And a lot of times when humanity receives that kind of heart-wrenching news, it, it, it triggers something in us. And it softens our heart. And a lot of times we might choose to spend our final days or months or years making amends, fixing fences, building relationships, or reflecting on our lives and realizing, you know, I could have done much better than I did, and I failed in many ways. And so now, with my remaining days or years, I just want to do good. I want to do the best I can. I'm more determined now to do something that, that's good and memorable in this world. And you would think only the most hardest and evil of hearts would hear news like your time is now short, it's limited. And draw the conclusion, well, then I got to be even more wicked and evil because I got time to make up for. Because I can't be as evil as I want to be just in this short time that I have to exist in this realm. If that doesn't show the very character and the heart and the depths of darkness that we learn about in Scripture about our foe, about the devil who opposes all things God, I don't know what does. But he is absolutely rotten to the core. And Jesus warned us a little bit, at least, about this when he was confronting the Pharisees who were hypocrites. They were pretending to be things that they weren't, pretending to be close to God and righteous when they were far from him. And in John 8, 44, Jesus confronts them. And he says to them, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own 
character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You, you can't get good fruit <laughs> from, from a, a, a dead tree or a tree that's not a fruit-bearing tree. You can't expect to get anything else out of that. And this is so revealing about the very core, every fiber of Satan, his very character only wants to work evil. There's no good in him. And that any kind of motive, that means every motive, every thought, every action, though it may be deceptively good, only has as its final aim evil and harm and destruction and ruin. The very character of Satan, rotten to the core. And he's so rotten, it's like it's not over till it's over. I will defy God, I will defy his people until my very last breath, so to speak. There's just no quit, there's no mercy, there's no submission. And that's how evil works. And a lot of times Satan is so deceptive, we find ourselves wanting to make friends with evil. Or to make pets out of our sins. And that is not how evil works. Evil is our enemy and God is determined to set us free from that. And one of the ways he does that is by sharing and revealing truth about who he really is and who Satan really is and how sin really works. Rage reminds me of um, World War II when I think of evil and rage. And the Battle of the Bulge, which was, I think it was the largest and bloodiest battle uh, of the war for the United States. And it was Hitler's very last rage here. And he was already technically defeated from the, uh, the troops arriving on the beaches of Normandy. Uh, they saved Private Ryan, among other people, when they arrived there. And so they were outnumbered, they were outsupplied, but... Hitler did not want to surrender and give up, even though he didn't really have a chance. So he sent his troops back into this last front of rage to, to try to make a difference. And sadly, thousands and thousands more lives were taken on both sides of the war. It, it was just a rage. There was no quit. There was no giving up here. Well... Death and the, and the lives that would be lost didn't seem to trouble him or bother him. There was no change of heart. It's just all-out war and assault. Satan's fear is limited to this earth, and his time is limited, and his, his fear is uh, limited as far as to his access to God. Consider verse 14. He goes after, therefore, the offspring of the woman. He goes after the church, the people that follow Christ, the worshipers of God. But God provides the wings of an eagle to bring her to safety. Now this again is reminiscent of the people of Israel. He used that same terminology in Exodus 19.4 when he says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And so we get this picture of God protecting the church and caring for the church, but also he is desiring to continually bring us to himself. Every, the motive of God and everything God does 
is to enlighten our minds and to free us from sin and darkness and to bring us to himself. For as we were reminded in that song, worthy, 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 God is a beautiful God. He's good, he's pure. And so he brings us to himself. And though Satan tries to wreak havoc and harm, and in this case, verse 15, like wanting to wipe them out in a flood, wipe the church or wipe the people out in a flood. We saw the same thing in Exodus with the people of God, where God parted the waters of the Red Sea so that his people could walk on dry land to safety, but also parted the waters of the River Jordan so that his people could cross. They're always getting where God wants them to be if they follow him rightly. And they're under his protection. But it doesn't mean that we won't have to walk through walls of water, so to speak. Well, when did the church ever uh, have to endure some kind of great flood? Well, there's no record of that, and I think it's symbolic. But what is it symbolic of? What does the, the, uh, what does the devil try to wash the church away with to destroy us? I think there's a good case that it may be the walls of lies that Satan throws at us. Because when Jesus addressed the churches in the first chapters of Revelation, there are two prominent problems that he addressed when he confronted them. And one of them was worldliness, the lies of believing that the ways of the world are better than the ways of God, that they deliver you, that they bring you to a place of peace, of happiness, but also false teaching. There was false teachings in the church, just another form of theological or biblical lies here. So I believe that Satan is wanting to infiltrate or to, to just pour out lie after lie, accusation after accusation, to muddy the waters of God's clear truth, to mix our minds up and to bring things into our lives where we're not sure and where we're not confident in the Lord. Can you hear that? Okay. All right, I tried everything I could. Whoa! <laughs> Except for that. All right. Okay, so. I think that it's, uh, well, when we keep in mind or, or digest this and think about this rage of Satan and how determined he is to destroy us, and lies are one of his best weapons. As I open, it also reminds me of the great care that we are under of God. Because when you think about the assault and you take in how evil he is and how he wants to destroy as much goodness, he wants to destroy as many lives, he wants to destroy our minds and our thinking and pervert them and twist them. And we do see this happening in the world, especially outside the church, where people fall prey to this kind of evil. But we are very blessed at New Covenant Fellowship to be under such great care. God has done an outstanding, praiseworthy job, I think, of preserving us. We're in a place where the truth is still preached. We're in a place where true Christian fellowship takes place. People truly care for one another and have a desire and a passion to follow after God and to learn all they can about him. And it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. And we enjoy these freedoms and this atmosphere because God has created it for us. 
Because that dragon became furious in verse 17 with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimonies of Jesus. And the idea is that he failed to devour the Messiah because God took him up. And so now he just makes war on all of the people here in the church. It's, it's a assault that he has. I think a good question to ask if that's the case, if that's our story here, how are we doing? How is the church doing under God's care but yet under the assault of the devil? Are we making a difference? Are we making progress? Are we glorifying his name? Or are we giving in? Are we losing battles? Well, the answer to that question depends on who you ask because there are those in the church who would say the church is doing great good. The church is pushing back darkness. The world is becoming a better and better place. And since Christ has come, the scales have certainly tilted in the favor of Christ and his people and his church. And the salt and the light on church remains a very powerful force to be reckoned with. And it is making a difference. Uh, you might ask others and they might give you an opposite report. They might say, well, actually, no, uh, ever since the, the early church, things are just getting worse and worse. It seems like the whole world is going to pot. And there are times uh, when the gospel breaks through, but it's just, uh, it's just small little revivals that are taking place. And it's more of a doomsday uh, perspective of or failure perspective of the church, that the church is really just making very insignificant changes. So what is the answer to this? Personally, I think it's both. I think they're both correct answers. I think throughout the time of history, since Christ has been here, the church has made tremendous progress. We have brought great good into this world, and we continue to bring great good. And I say we as, you know, but Christ in us has brought this great good. But I also see there are times and ages um, and where the church does not do so well, where the church is failing the Lord, where the church gets a passive and not zealous and allows false teachers into its, its walls and its buildings and so forth and is not a salt and life, uh, light. As a matter of fact, the world influences the church more than the church influences the world. That happens throughout all the time of history. I think it's both that we see. So... We keep this in mind, and there are times where we might think, especially here in America, when we think, consider the state of the, a lot of American churches and how liberalism and postmodernism infiltrates things, that it's not a very good report. But we need to just keep in mind the work of God is not just American. It's all over the world, and we become so myopic, and we think that we are the church, and we are alone the people of God, and that's not the case at all. In places that we might least expect, the gospel is gleaming. So over the past four decades, Christianity has grown in China faster than anywhere else in the world. Um, it's greatly growing in Africa, now uh, not growing because of the missionaries that are sent there, but now uh, growing because of the strong indigenous churches and missionaries that are being sent from there. God is doing a great work there. 
Uh, many are seeing that Christianity has exploded in the Middle East. We've heard uh, testimonies from uh, the Livermans and, and a lot of their guests. Christianity truly is making an impact in the Middle East these days. I recently read where there have been more people that have come uh, become Christians in Iran in the last 20 years than in the last 1,000 years. Now, that still may not be a lot quantitatively, but if you think about that and take that in, that means that the, the gospel, the power of God is reaching into places where you would think it has absolutely no chance. Well, what about progress, say, in general terms? What about just the goodness and the kindness of the church? Are we making an impact? Is, is, is ministry and the grace of God upon us? Are we truly blessed? I think so. I think we are absolutely way more blessed than, than we would be otherwise. And even in the light of churches that could do a lot better, this world is blessed because we are in this world. You think about in, gen in generic terms. In a 2022 article in the Atlantic, it says, uh, this is just since 1990, so many of our lifetimes. Just since 1990, poverty and hunger have declined dramatically, while lifespans have increased on every continent. According to the report, the share of the global smokers has declined by about 20%. Children are roughly 30% less likely to be now malnourished or sunted. Rates of tuberculosis have similarly declined by about one-third. Maternal deaths per live births have declined by 40%. The prevalence of, of neglected tropical diseases such as dengue and leprosy has declined by roughly 70%. And the share of the global population with access to toilets and safe plumbing Guatemala and the jungles and so forth, we've been a part of some of that, has increased by 100%. In 1990, more than 8% of children died before their fifth birthday, but that figure fell to 3.6% in 2021. So in spite of all the, the doomsday predictions that we're so inundated with, um, and doomsday predictions about we're overpopulated and we need to call out part of the, the weaker part of humanity, despite of all of those reports. Uh, today's rate of famine deaths is about 99% lower than that of the 1800s, despite the population being roughly five times larger. So we're not killing ourselves. We're not reproducing faster than we can feed ourselves and burning up Earth's resources by any means. The fact of the matter is, in our culture, you would never know there was such a thing as good news. You talk about famine. There is a famine of good news in our culture. Most of the things that we hear, uh, at best, are neutral. But it is threat, fear, you know, fear-mongering, because that's what sells. And so that's what we are exposed to from every form of media that we have access to. And we're always facing a tremendous calamity to be scared of. Uh, we're we're going to starve to death. We're going to suffocate to death with the uh, air that's not clean. We're going to burn to death. We're going to be overcome by disease. We're going to be overcome by gangs. We're going to be overcome by crime. We're going to be overcome by governments. But when you look at the facts, there's both. There's a lot of progress and there are setbacks, but overall, 
we are way more better off and blessed by God, just even in the last 30 years, than we were. So God is good, and that's good news. I think it has to do with Jesus' teaching of Matthew 13 to bring it into perspective as we begin to wind down. He, he was teaching, as he often did, and he says in Matthew 13, this parable, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, The enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. So let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, gather the wheat into my barn. I think Jesus is showing us that it's a back and forth. The kingdom is being sowed, but the enemy is right there to try to destroy whatever the Lord is doing. And there's constant opposition. There's ups and downs, there's back and forth. Of course, we know uh, the, the end of the story. There's no doubt to that. The enemy is absolutely defeated. But in this wilderness and in this desert, we experience the ups and downs before it will all be sorted out in the end. So I'll close with this remedy. So what's the remedy? If we see the grounds of the rage and the purpose of the rage that Satan's time is short, what is the remedy? Verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. We have this uh, enemy. It's not bad enough that he, he uh, tempts us and harasses us in our lives, but then he takes our case before the throne or before God in whatever way that happens, and he accuses us and points out our sins and demands that justice is done and kind of rubs it in God's nose, if you will. But because of the blood of the Lamb, none of it sticks. Because the, as we were reminded in Sunday school, the price has been paid. The wrath of God against our sins has been satisfied in the death, the substitutionary death of Christ. So none of that sticks. He's been cast down. So practically then, how do we overcome? I think there's three things here that John tells us. We overcome by what I just said, the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the lamb is so important in our lives because that's what we stand on. We understand that we have our salvation. We have our breath. We have our being. We exist. We are no longer under the wrath of God. We are the church that we are, the people that we are, because of the blood of the lamb. Christ gave himself for us. And that blood is a powerful blood. It appeases the wrath of God. 
And it includes us into the very family of God. And now, now we're heirs and now we're brothers and sisters. So the way we overcome is by properly understanding the gospel, understanding how the blood of the lamb works, understanding the truth of this so that we don't give ways to the lies of the enemy. We stand on the blood of the lamb. How sad it is to hear that um, fewer churches now are singing about the, the blood of the Lamb. Some churches have decided it's too primitive and it's too brutal to sing hymns about the blood of the Lamb, and yet this is a, a weapon in which we overcome the enemy. It's by understanding and applying the blood of the Lamb in our lives. And so they forfeit this great weapon. I am blessed to be in a congregation that rejoices over the blood of the spilt, the spilt blood of Christ. They also overcome by the word of their testimony. So how do we, in this desert wilderness wandering, fight off the enemy, the blood of the lamb, but also in the word of the testimony? Well, what's so powerful about that? When we give a testimony, we're testifying to the reality of God. We're testifying to the, to the truth that God transforms lives, that God is a forgiving God that there is hope in this world, that we're not stuck in sin or we're not stuck in darkness, but that the word of God sets us free. And when we share that, the word of God, it's not so much our, our personal experience because that's not living and active, but as we share our testimony and we share the gospel, what God has done by using the word of God to frame it and describe it, then the word of God that's living and active, it goes out and it gives the, the spirit of God opportunity to transform more and more lives. Don't ever underestimate the power of the word of God. It tells us that it is living and active. It tells us that it can permeate the hardest minds and, and change the hardest hearts. There's a power in it. And then the last way or the last tool that we can overcome through the blood of the lamb and standing on that as that's our right standing with God. We do not have right standing with God or relationship with God without the blood of the lamb. And we share God's word and we share the transforming power of God to redeem a soul with our testimony. But there's also something else in here and that is love. And it's stated in a negative way, not a passive a positive way, but really you could restate that last phrase by the, um, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Well, if they didn't love their lives, then what did they love? Another way to say that is they loved God so much that they were willing to give their lives. They didn't love their lives so more than God. They didn't say, wait, I draw a, a line here. I'm not going to worship God or follow God if, if my body might be tortured and my very physical life might be taken. So the, the testimony of the saints and the life of the saints, their love for God is a weapon. When we are that sold out to God, when we know him that deeply, when we trust him that truly, then we are willing to, we, we see the, the momentary value of the world that we live in, even of our own physical bodies. God is worth way more than anything. And when we get our minds to that place and we're willing to give up things for Christ that we used to hold on to, I don't know about you, but there are things that I'm still holding on to that I just have not given over to God, but he's pulling on them. But we get to this point where everything, we give it all to God. 
We don't love anything more than God. And that is how we overcome. What can the devil do with that kind of love? What can he do with that kind of devotion? When you stand on the blood and you preach and live the word of God and you love God so much that you will give anything to be with him because it is such an honor. Now that is the way that we overcome the devil in this wilderness that we live in. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the preaching of his word.